0: So this morning we're going to be um, looking at a contrast of confessions. Um, I'd like to turn to 1 John chapter 1 to start this lesson. Uh, There's been a lot of circumstances and lessons that have kind of skirted close to the ideas of confession. Uh, We've looked at uh, Daniel chapter 9 last week where Daniel confessed sin in a very pivotal way that um, really initiated the return of the Jewish nation back to Jerusalem. A week before that, we looked at Psalm 18, and we looked at some statements David made in Psalm 18 that reflect things we see in 1 John 1, uh, verses 5 through 10. Um, And so it seemed helpful to spend some time studying more Um, studying in a more centered way on the idea of confession and what that looks like in God's Word. The reason I think this is really important, and especially with the idea of looking at confession with contrasts, is we see those contrasts in the Bible, and we're going to be starting with Saul and David this morning. We're going to see an example in 1 Samuel 15 where Saul did confess his sin, but I think we're able to conclude pretty clearly that Saul's confession was ingenuine and shallow and really didn't produce any kind of meaningful change whereas what we see in Psalm 51 where we'll get at the end of our lesson is a confession that really we understand was meaningful it was not shallow it did lead to substantial change in David's life but also deep in David's heart in his relationship with God now 1 John chapter 1 I think just by way of introduction I think, emphasizes the importance of confession. Um, And so I want to read this to start out and make a few comments about it by way of introduction. We're going to look at 1 John 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2 here. 1 John 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So I think something interesting about this is in verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9, there's a really significant if statement here. It doesn't say in 1 John 1, if we ask for forgiveness, he is faithful, right? And obviously we do need to ask for forgiveness when we sin, but there's a really important if statement. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you look around this context, back in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us, John is lumping himself into that category and so confessing sin I think it's important to understand it's a lot like the concept of faith where faith we can think is you know just something that maybe was only important maybe when we first became a Christian to understand and now we kind of have as we grow better handle on how to serve God and so we're just kind of past that but just like faith is something we more deeply understand that we grow in um, faith being something that we see in God's word there's a faith especially in John's gospel where people have a belief, but again, just like confession, that's in contrast to people who had a more genuine belief that was more rooted in a genuine heart and love for God. It's the same with confession. It's important that we understand this subject, that we understand what the truth of confessing sin looks like, how it's modeled in God's word, how it's demonstrated. And it's important that we understand God's promises that are uniquely tied to confessing our sins. And this isn't something, again, that just applies to people who are new Christians, who before they're baptized, they confess their sin and confess Jesus as Lord. But again, John lumping himself in this category here, um, this is something that we grow in and that we we need to always be willing to do and should not fear doing, again, because of, in verse 9, there being such perfect assurance we have that God will deal with us gently and mercifully and graciously um, if we confess our sins. So, turn to 1 Samuel 15. And in this first lesson, we're going to be looking at just really fundamentally how do we understand what confession looks like when it's done in truth, with a genuine heart, in a way that produces meaningful change and conviction. And we're going to start in the negative with Saul's confession in 1 Samuel 15. Um, We're going to start a little bit earlier than where we read in the scripture reading um, in 1 Samuel 15. But to summarize the first nine verses here, we're going to pick up in verse 10 in just a moment. But God had charged Saul, the first appointed king of Israel, to annihilate, to utterly destroy the Amalekites. This was an ancient promise God made back in Exodus chapter 17. The Amalekites came out and attacked Israel when they were being led out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, and God swore an oath that he would destroy the Amalekites for what they did to Israel at that time. So, God charges Saul at the beginning of the chapter, go, utterly destroy them. And if you look at the end of verse, verse 9, well, in the beginning of the verse, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So what we'll see in verse 11, God is going to put it very bluntly, Saul disobeyed God. And what we're going to see from verse 10 through 21, Saul is going to refuse to accept responsibility for what he had done, even when directly confronted with it. And what we're going to see in verse 24 through verse 31, is when Saul does confess, we are able to see very clearly that he's really only confessing his sin just to appease the situation, not really because he's accepting responsibility and not that he's actually convicted by what he's done, but just to quickly kind of move on and let's put it behind us and we'll see that as we go forward. So 10 through 21, we're going to see how Saul first tries very hard seemingly to sound righteous, without actually having done what God said, and it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So 10 through 21. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. By the way, just maybe if you write in your Bible or make a note, that's the right response. We are not going to see Saul when confronted with his sin, Saul being the guilty party, we are not going to see in Saul any response of distress or grief or conviction. Verse 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to, to, morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, notice this, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this, the, this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them, up, brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes and you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So again, Saul tries to sound righteous, but can you see and even kind of hear how awkward it is I mean, even verse 13, after God has just told Samuel, before the interaction, Saul is turned back from following me. God regrets that he even made Saul the king, and he has not carried out his commands. Can you see how awkward it is as Samuel approaches Saul? I imagine Saul has this big smile on his face and sees Samuel coming to him. Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. And by the way, that, that's strange inherently because why would you need to even affirm that if you've actually done it? And so again, it's just, it's awkward, it's strange, and then the rest of the things that he says in verse uh, 15, where he's trying to justify it by saying, no, 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 this is to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and then in verse 21, putting it on the people and then seemingly justifying it, which this just really does not seem to be the honest truth, saying that they took all of the best stuff because really they want to sacrifice all of it to the Lord to honor him. And that is highly suspect. I just want to make the point here that when somebody knows what is right, when they know what is right, so I'm talking about me and us, right? When I know what is right and I know I'm not doing it, and I know that there's sin in my life, but I'm not dealing with it. When we try to cover that up, we try to sound righteous, we try to use righteous language, but we're not actually righteous. We're not actually doing what's right. We're not actually dealing with our sin. It just, it doesn't work. Some of the most bizarre conversations I've ever had in my life have been with brethren that I know are in sin or have something in their life they have not repented of, and they want to look righteous, but they also, at the same time, they do not want to deal with the sin that is in their life, or pride that is in their life, but at the same time, they want to make sure that they look righteous, right? Those have been some of the most bizarre conversations and just strange that I've ever had. So the reality is, it's not that we need to be trying to sound righteous, we need to have good hearts and be genuine. And what's more important than using godly language is just being godly. And that's not what Saul was here. And think about this as well. Do you think Saul was fooled, or Samuel rather, was fooled at all, even by Saul's initial pronouncement of his faithfulness, even if God didn't reveal to him that he had disobeyed the Lord? Again, I just, I can't emphasize enough how strange verse 13 is a righteous person doesn't need to talk that way and affirm themselves with such exuberance, right? So I think even if God hadn't revealed that Saul disobeyed him, Samuel at the very least would raise an eyebrow like, why are you talking like this? Why do you feel a need to say this? This is strange. The point is this. People who are genuine, who are humble-hearted, when somebody is bent on arrogance, it's... They can see through it. Again, the most important thing is not to try to sound righteous and use godly language. The most important thing is having an open and humble heart. Let's look at 22 through 31, and this is the point Samuel gets to. Samuel said, "'Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination.'" And insubordination is as the iniquity of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So verse 23 there, how convicted do you think Saul should be? How humbled should he be by that accusation? Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. So stop there. That sounds great, doesn't it? He said, I think, exactly what he needs to say. Now verse 25, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So, Saul, so Samuel went back from following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. So again, True confession is not reverent-sounding words. Saul says what sounds like the right things. But you know what's interesting in verse 32? Who reconciled the error Saul had made? Saul didn't say, I've sinned, let's go take care of the problem. Let's finish what I failed to do. No, it's Samuel who says, bring me King Agag, and he hacks him to pieces. In chapter 16, Samuel's not fooled by these empty words. He continues grieving for Saul, and God tells him, get up and let's go get the king that I've appointed to replace him. There's no sense of gravity, no sense of remorse, no appropriate heaviness of conviction or heaviness of heart, just words, saying what seems right to say in the moment just to appease the situation. This may sound strange, and this is where, um, so true confession is not, not viz not, about release from judgment. True confession is not about release from judgment. This may sound strange. This is going to make more sense when we make the contrast with David in Psalm 51. This is kind of the difference between seeing sin as an offense against God himself that grieves him and is destructive and destroys the relationship that wreaks havoc on my heart and my soul, that has a ripple effect of consequences, compared to maybe it's just like paying off a parking ticket. You know, I violate the speed limit, I get caught, I get pulled over, go to the courthouse, pay them some money, whatever. I go on with my life, right? So it's all, it's really the goal is, if I say the right words and if I confess my sin, well, then I'm released from judgment and from punishment, what we're going to see with David is release from judgment was not itself the great end goal of confession. Um, Think about this relationally again. I think those of us who are married have probably experienced this many, many times. But if you've wronged your spouse or said something to them that offended them and genuinely hurt them, have you noticed how sometimes if you try to move on too quickly or it's like, we're over it, let's move on. You've seen how that increases the tension of the relationship because you're not giving credit enough that just a moment of reconciliation or saying the right thing, that doesn't cut it with a relationship. Again, this isn't like paying off a parking ticket and just dealing with the fine and moving on with your life. There's more that's been done that needs to be recognized Saul does not recognize this. True confession is not about saving image or reputation. And this is critical. Look at verse 30. You see this both in verse 25 and 30, but I think especially in verse 30, Saul says, I have sinned. (laughs) Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel go back with me. By the way, do you notice he doesn't even acknowledge that Samuel said, you are no longer the king of Israel. God has rejected you. And he doesn't say, whoa, what have I done? And Saul fights that to the end. He loses his life fighting against that. Saul is not interested in reconciling his relationship with God. He's not interested in really understanding the truth about what he's actually done and taking true responsibility for it. His confession is as empty as saving his image and reputation. When we confess our sins, but really all we're trying to do is save face, protect our image, or, oh no, people are finding out that I've done something, I better hurry up and confess this and save my reputation. It's not genuine. I want to insert here, by the way, the point of these lessons is not to demand of others, you know, more people need to confess or, boy, I know brother so-and-so really needs to go forward. The point of these lessons is not to examine others, but really that we would be equipped to examine ourselves and grow in this ourselves. It's this something that I've been seeing I really need to grow in and I really fall short with. So I just want to be careful to point that out, that any point that's made is to equip us for deeper self-examination more than anything else. Another thing you see with Saul is he ultimately was not willing to deal with the consequences of his own sin. So again, you see that in verse 25 again. You also see it again in verse 30. That Saul had promised, or Samuel had promised to Saul, he was rejected from being king over Israel. And Saul was not willing to deal with that. He wasn't even willing to deal with the humiliation of the moment. He just very quickly wanted Samuel to come and honor him and, you know, not show that there was any problem at all, but stand with him and worship the Lord with him. True confession is not about trying to control the consequences of our sin. It's not about trying to avoid the consequences of sin. Again, that's a contrast we'll see with David. David in his confession of Psalm 51 wasn't trying to control or undermine the consequences God had promised. He wasn't looking for an easy escape. He was looking to be reconciled with God to walk through and work through those consequences in a reconciled condition. And David understood that ultimately, any lingering consequence of sin, whether it be loss of image, reputation, relationship, whatever it is, God is fully just and wise in administering those consequences to produce even greater humility and godliness. Let's look in contrast then at Psalm 51. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 51. And I think the difference that you'll see in Psalm 51 will speak for itself so i I hope that in psalm 51 um, these applications will be simple um, with the text so psalm 51 um, this is a critical moment in the life of david i think when we think about david generally there's a couple moments that we consider to be the most critical the first one would definitely definitely be when david killed goliath That tends to be what everybody knows about David most famously and for good reason. The second climactic event of David's life that seems to be the the normal thing to know about David is when he sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah. He murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And when Nathan was sent by God to confront him, when David seemed to be very content covering all of this up and just living with this sin lingering in his life, and in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan was sent, famously spoke a parable to David about a man, poor man, with a little young lamb and a rich man who took it, despite having other, other lambs and livestock, took it from him, killed it, served it to a guest. David said, this man must die for what he's done because he had no remorse. And Nathan famously pointed out, you are the man. And so David sin with Bathsheba, it was exposed David had genuinely confessed his sin. He offered no defense, no justification. And God forgave him. Nathan assured David, your sins have been taken away. Then he writes Psalm 51. If you look at the heading of the psalm for the choir director, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So just Very quickly here, something general in contrast to Saul. If all confession was about for David was released from judgment, that's already happened. God had already forgiven David. There's no point in writing Psalm 51 anymore. He said he sinned. God said your sin is taken away. It's taken care of. Move on with your life. And yet, we have this psalm where David continues to beg God to work in his life to restore him. And in this psalm, I think God marks and demonstrates in David the heart and the motive of true confession. I want to spend just a couple minutes reading this psalm all the way through, and then we'll begin making some points on what we see with his confession after reading it. So Psalm 51, verse 1, we'll spend a couple minutes reading the psalm. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from, from, from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Oftentimes we can get stuck in cycles of pride, complacency, cycles of habitual sin. Where maybe we know that the sin is a sin. We know it's wrong. We know it's affecting our relationship with God. But we're afraid and resistant to open ourselves up to brethren, to God, to honestly pray. Nobody who has an attitude like this, about sin. Nobody. Nobody who confesses like this will be permanently stuck in cycles of habitual sin. Nobody who has an attitude like this about sin will drift away from the Lord to apostasy. This is the heart that God is seeking. This is what true confession looks like. Let's look at verses one through five. True confession it seeks to see and accept sin's deep and devastating effects. See that David wasn't avoiding that. And you notice five times, five times, David begs God to do something, to cleanse, wash, blot out. Verse one, blot out my transgressions. Verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities. Verse two again, cleanse me from my sin. If you look down at verse 9, blot out all my iniquities. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. I mean, hasn't God forgiven him? Why Why keep asking? And I think you see in the psalm, it's not that David is not lacking faith in what God can do. You actually see great faith in the assurance he has. I want you to think about this. When you hurt someone, and I mean hurt them deeply, deeply, you have devastated the relationship. Don't you say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so, I'm sorry. You don't just say sorry once. David is not in a position to make demands. He's in the position of a beggar. When we understand what sin does, it doesn't put us in a position to make demands like Saul says to Samuel, I've sinned, now honor me now. Let's, let's, let's just go and worship. Let's, let's move on. Saul was not in a position to make any demands. He was in the position of a beggar, which he refused to take. And the irony is, as David, as Saul rather, as Saul tried to protect his reputation on his own initiative, he lost it. Do any of us think highly of Saul and his life as a king? Whereas David, who allowed himself to be brought low, even publicly low, do any of us have a lack of respect for David? No, David allowing himself to be brought low was honored and exalted. True confession, it seeks to see and accept sins deep and affecting consequences, especially toward God. I think we see this in verse 3. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David is saying, I'm broken. I'm desolate. There's no denying it. There's no escaping it. There's no moving on. Verse 4, Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is not denying the effect that his sin has had on others. Bathsheba, Uriah, the nation. But Bathsheba, Bathsheba was a daughter of God. Her purity, that belonged to God. Uriah, he was a child of God. Uriah belonged to God. Uriah's loyalty was to God. The effect that sin had had on the nation of Israel, Israel's condition, that belonged to God. That was for God. Everything David had, that belonged to God. That was given by God. And so it's not that David is denying the ripple effect of his sin on others. He is accepting That ultimately, anything that a sin has done to anybody else was a very direct assault on God Himself. The greatest effect we can understand our sin has is the grief it brings to God. You are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. What David is acknowledging is God, you have every right. You can accuse me, you can be as harsh as you want to be, you have every right. You can punish me. You can throw me away. And as the note says there in verse 1, where does that drive David? Because David's conviction, this is not a sorrow of the world producing death. This isn't a self-degrading humility. You know, what's interesting about good relationships is forgiveness equips you to have greater convictions. Forgiveness equips the guilty party to have even greater understanding of how they have hurt the relationship. They are able to examine things much more deeply, much more thoroughly. And so it's not that God's forgiveness in 2 Samuel 12 just absolved everything and David's just moving on. But now, now David has the clarity to truly understand how far his sin had affected both himself and his relationship with God. And I love verse 2. David understands that God needs to continue to wash him thoroughly. Have you ever seen somebody who has cancer and they've gotten treatments for it? Are they ever satisfied when they go to the doctor and they're able to be treated slightly, but they receive the news, hey, we we got like a little bit out, but man, there's a lot left in there. And it's going to grow back and get worse real fast. They say, whew, I'm glad that's over with. All right, let's move on with life. No, that's how Saul treated it. And Saul became worse and worse. And the sin that he failed to truly accept, it festered. It overtook his life. It blinded him more thoroughly. Whereas David says, God, now that you've forgiven me, help. This, this has destroyed me. You need to wash me thoroughly every remnant, every seed, every smidgen of my, dis- my decision to turn against you that's still lingering, wash me, cleanse me. Verse 6 through 11. True confession is not just about getting out of punishment and trouble, getting released from judgment. It's about being restored and fully reconciled. You look at how the section begins in verse 6. You desire truth in the innermost being. David's focus is not let's rush to the altar and worship God. You'll notice at the end of the psalm, in contrast to Saul, it's the sacrifices come later. The first thing is my heart and where I stand with God, beyond what can be seen visibly. David recognizes God desires truth in the innermost being. And by the way, can David reach there on his own initiative, his innermost being? No, David is begging God, only you can do this. This is a part of who I am. You are the only one who can reach into that hidden innermost place. But there's a confidence in that hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. You see, there's, there's a balance. He understands the devastation of sin as God sees it, But he also has confidence, renewed zeal. God is a God of mercy and power. So verse 7, he calls on God to purify him. He will be clean. If God washes him, he'll be whiter than snow. Isn't that amazing? David sees he is damaged and broken and dirty. But he says, but God, you can make me clean. You can completely eradicate my sin. I can be pure if you will do it. And in verse 9, David seeks not artificial joy, not shallow gladness, but a joy and a gladness that comes from this restoration of forgiveness. And in verse 10, calls on God to do the impossible. When he says, create in me a clean heart, it's calling on God, I need a new heart. And you need to renew within me a willing, steadfast spirit. David seeks to rebuild his obedience, his dedication to God. And so David is not making empty commitments, shallow promises. David is begging God to act according to his promises, the commitments God has made. I just want to throw this out on as his aside, but it's always concerning at the very least when someone is confessing their sin and they begin throwing out exuberant promises and here's what I'm going to do and this, this and this and Slow down over and over again. You, you and I have both seen this. Where somebody in the passion of wanting to make things right, they make all of these great commitments. And usually when a person does that, what happens afterward? There they go. Commitments are not followed through on. Confession is not making quick commitments, shallow promises. It's just a time to embrace what sin has done and to seek God's promises, to humble oneself. 12 through 19, through the end of the psalm, true confession seeks a renewed joy and praise that are not absent of a contrite heart, but are rooted in it. So you see in verse 12 and 13, David is seeking a renewed joy and a willing spirit to teach transgressors his ways and sinners being converted to God. Verse 14, he's seeking that he could declare praise to God. And verse 15, that God would open his lips. So again, not, not artificial praise, not empty allegiances, not words that sound godly and sound reverent, but there's not really a truly broken heart. And David recognizes the sacrifices of God, what needs to be kept very carefully, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then he concludes the psalm not putting the cart before the horse, but things are put back in their proper perspective. That God does not give artificial security. So he says, By your favor, do good to Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem. Not a security that's self-made, not created by the strength of man or by the king without God, David is calling on God to create walls of genuine security. In verse 19, not as the nation in Isaiah 1 were offering sacrifices without any repentance, remorse, or contriteness of heart, or any remorse over their sins, or any care given to them, but he says those things are put in their place when they are coming from a heart that is rooted in understanding these things first. And so David is putting things back into their proper perspective. We need to recognize that when confessing sin, where our heart really stands with God is critical in determining the foundation we build our relationship with God on. When we look at our own sin, when we examine our lives, we need to be encouraged that as we confess our sins, God guarantees mercy and restoration. But if in our lives we build a foundation of resistance and pride and defense, God will bring us down. So if here, if you are here this morning and there is sin in your life, I encourage you to urgently make that right. But I think oftentimes what we need, although public confession is very helpful, I think oftentimes the most important confessions we make are made personally, both in our prayers and to one another as well. And so we need to develop a culture of confession. And I think that's what David is getting to in verse 18 and 19, that God building a culture that accepts the transparency of our condition, the need for grace, the culture of God's kingdom can be properly built on that foundation. May God help us to build that culture here and to be that kind of people. If there's anything we can do for you this morning in your relationship with God, please bring it forward we stand and sing an invitation song.